Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW, and on this week's Top Docs radio show, I connected with Dr. Priya Rudolph. She's a medical oncologist with Georgia Cancer Specialists. They're one of the area's largest and most respected cancer groups. Her office is located in Athens, Georgia. And while Priya has expertise in a number of cancer types, for this discussion, we focused on breast cancer. And I know one of the things that many patients like to try and learn about if they can is what motivated a doctor to go into medicine? Why did they ultimately choose the specialty that they're practicing? And Priya was kind enough to share her poignant story about what motivated her to select oncology as her field of study. Check it out. I actually had several family members, unfortunately, that have been affected by cancer. And it all started with my mother, who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which uh, really is a curable cancer, but unfortunately took her life. However, left a very deep need in my heart to help cancer patients. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, taken the field that I have because it has come a very long way. And this day and age, cancer is a chronic illness like many other illnesses. I had just graduated and uh, literally she was diagnosed um, about a month or two before I graduated. I really did not have any inclination whatsoever to go into oncology until she was diagnosed with cancer. and. It, um, I, I, I was doing graduate school at that point. I had gotten accepted into graduate school and then took a six-month leave of absence, came back and took care of my mother, uh, essentially through her chemotherapy treatment and um, really put a very deep um need in my heart for what cancer patients go through and, and left a, an indelible mark in my heart, so to speak, after I took care of her. So this was back in the early 90s, and there was no supportive care whatsoever. Her treatments were entirely in the hospital, and I still remember the nights where she would um, wake up with uh, just large amounts of vomiting and feeling poorly. She's in a lot of pain and um, she really had a miserable time with all her treatments. And this day and age, that has come a very long way. Fortunately, we seldom admit anybody in the hospital. It's pretty much entirely outpatient. Um, it's rare for any of my patients to say they, they even vomit. It's primarily nausea. People go on about with their jobs and whatever else in life. And um, so it really has come a long way, fortunately. But the hard times of her dealing with the side effects of chemo was, was really what left a deep impact. Stick around. We got the full interview with Dr. Priya Rudolph coming up next. 
We sat down with Dr. Priya Rudolph of Georgia Cancer Specialist. She's one of the medical oncologists with the practice. And Priya, I really appreciate you making some time to jump on and share some information with us today. Thank you for having me, CW. My pleasure. And I was reading your bio on the practice website, and I noticed that you have personal reasons that might have guided you towards the field of oncology. I actually had several family members, unfortunately, that have been affected by cancer and it all started with my mother, who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which uh, really is a curable cancer, but unfortunately took her life. However, left a very deep need in my heart to help cancer patients. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, taken the field that I have because it has come a very long way. And this day and age, cancer is a chronic illness like many other illnesses. Now, when your mother was dealing with her cancer, were you already in medical school or were you a young person yet that hadn't gone that way? I had just graduated and uh, literally was she was diagnosed um, about a month or two before I graduated. I see. And so when it came time to decide what specialty you're going to drill down into, that's what kind of led you in that way? Yes, I I really did not have any inclination whatsoever to go into oncology until she was diagnosed with cancer. And it, um, I, I, I was doing graduate school at that point and had gotten accepted into graduate school and then took a six-month leave of absence, came back and took care of my mother uh, essentially through her chemotherapy treatments and um, really put a very deep um, need in my heart for what cancer patients go through and, and left a, an indelible mark in my heart, so to speak, after I took care of her. What was the most challenging thing that you saw in that process and that journey that she was going through that left an impact on you? I would like to see this be different or better for, for patients that I'm dealing with down the road. Yeah, you know, um, so this was back in the early 90s, and there was no supportive care whatsoever. Her treatments were entirely in the hospital, and I still remember the nights where she would um, wake up with uh, just large amounts of vomiting and feeling poorly. She's in a lot of pain. And um, she really had a miserable time with all her treatments. And this day and age, that has come a very long way. Fortunately, we seldom admit anybody in the hospital. It's pretty much entirely outpatient. Um, it's rare for any of my patients to say they, they even vomit. It's primarily nausea. People go on about with their jobs and whatever else in life. And um, so it really has come a long way, fortunately. But the hard times of her dealing with the side effects of chemo was, was really what left a deep impact. Yeah, I, I, as I, over the last year or so, as I've done the show, we've had an opportunity to talk about different cancers along the way. And, and I was pleased to hear what you're talking about, that the, the, the medications that are administered now um, tend to have, as you were talking about, a little bit less uh, severe for most people um, yes. impact on their daily life like that, that they're not so incapacitated by just feeling terrible. No, not at all. It's amazing. I have so many women that are 
uh, and men uh, that go about their work. I have people from every occupation and practically every age group. I have elderly patients that many of whom are single and are able to entirely take care of themselves. It's really dramatic how different it's been over the past couple of decades and the supportive care and people are very independent. They travel, they pretty much live their lives out the way they wanted it to go. Now in your, in your field, as you work as a medical oncologist, from what I understand, you, you see patients with a number of different cancers, um, from breast cancer, lung cancer, colon, prostate, gynecologic malignancies, lymphoma. Do you have areas of, of those that, that you tend to either see a lot of patients in uh, by choice or just by the way it goes? That Do you have a focus of, out of those that you really try to uh, operate within because there's a particular appeal to you? Yes. So breast cancer is near and dear to me, and um, I really have a very large number of patients with breast cancer. And that may be because of being a female oncologist, um, it also certainly is something that I'm very drawn to. I've, uh, unfortunately, as a community oncologist, you can't specialize in a particular field. Um, and however, if I had the choice, that's probably what I would do full time, <laughs> although I, I very much enjoy taking care of a really wide variety of cancers. Um, I enjoy taking care of breast cancers a lot because the treatments have come a very long way and it's uh, very comforting to see my patients year after year for many years thereafter healthy and cured from their breast cancers. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury for a lot of other cancers. Now, how, how are we today with regards to the effectiveness that we have at detecting breast cancers early? So I often tell my patients um, that if they are diligent with their screenings, they can be cured from breast cancer uh, because really two things that are very important for women to do. One is self-breast exam monthly um, as well as keeping up with the early mammograms. And with those two alone, you can detect breast cancers that are very small and it can be completely surgically removed with or without additional treatment and be cured. And is mammogram still the the best way to go, or are there other diagnostic studies that are emerging now that obviously supplement the manual self-exam, but are there other diagnostics on the horizon or in use now that, that are showing some promise with being able to maybe detect some of the things that, uh, say, a lesion may be on the chest wall, for example, that's not too superficial, maybe, that it might be harder to find or feel? Sure. So there are two other modalities. Um, one is MRI of the breast. MRI of the breast is, um, is the other extreme of mammogram. It can be, it can detect lesions, uh, that are very tiny. The downside of that is it shows up lots of spots that may not even be cancer related. So it can lead to unnecessary biopsies. Yeah. It is, however, very helpful in women that have dense breasts where you can't detect lesions easily on a mammogram. Um, the other uh, modality that is up and coming is something called tomosynthesis. Um, it is basically 
a mammogram, the only difference being it takes multiple images of the breast, almost in a, um, goes around the breast taking multiple images. So it sort of gives a 3D view to a mammogram. Um, and Athens will actually have a tomosynthesis uh, machine incorporated here pretty soon in the near future. It, it is being utilized in some of the bigger centers in the country, and um, it really will improve the sensitivity of detecting uh, lesions that may not easily be visible on a mammogram. Do you think that, is that more for, say, women that are at a higher risk, maybe they have a pretty strong family history or maybe they've had um, uh, a lesion in the past on one side or the other, um, or is it one that, as, as we're talking, that may end up ultimately taking the place of a mammogram? The routine mammogram, yes. Actually, we hope that it will take the place of a routine mammogram. Uh, so that's definitely uh, the hope. The radiation exposure is not substantial. It's uh, uh, similar to mammogram. It's not as expensive as an MRI, so we mm -hmm. certainly hope that homosynthesis will become the new mammogram. And what about the genetic studies that are available now? How, how useful are they, and who should consider looking at genetic predisposition for breast cancer? Yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of uh, news about genetic testing. Yeah, um, some of the celebrities, uh, for example. <laughs> so uh, genetic testing, you know, genetic breast cancers really only account for about 5% of all breast cancers. That oh. said, um, it's certainly something that I look for in really most women, especially younger age or strong family history. I look for a reason to do genetic testing because it can have huge implications on treatment and in the future. Um, so women that have a very strong family history of breast or ovarian cancers in their next of kin um, or women that have had bilateral breast cancer either at the same time or at two different time points, um, younger age women um, and, and most cancers uh, considering uh, occur in women ages 60 and above, women younger in the 30s, 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, even up to age 50 um, certainly need to be looked into whether or not they should have genetic testing done. Uh, there is a very aggressive type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, uh, and the standard guideline is women uh, less than age 50 having that type of breast cancer should routinely be tested for genetic breast cancer. And the reason to look for the genetic breast cancer syndrome is these women have a very high risk of recurrence in the opposite breast, almost 85%, oh, wow. and can also develop ovarian cancer. Uh, therefore, their treatment would involve removing both breasts preventively, the opposite breast that's unaffected, um, as well as removing preventively the ovaries if they are tested positive for what we call the genetic breast cancer mutation, BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutations. Medical oncologist Dr. Priya Rudolph of Georgia Cancer Specialist located in Athens, Georgia, is joining me here on the phone. We're talking about breast cancer right now and how it's been 
diagnosed. Um, obviously, catching it early is very important because it gives you far more in in, in terms of options um, with with regards to how you treat it, as well as the rate of success in terms of arresting the cancer's development. And Priya, when when we look at women with regards to things like the man, mammograms and things like that, from what I understand, isn't it around forty that they start to recommend? Getting those, or or is it? Are they able to do so earlier now? That is correct. So the standard recommendation is ages 40 and above uh, yearly mammogram. Really, there is no end age at which to stop doing mammograms. That said, if someone has a family history of breast cancer, usually the recommendation is 10 years younger than okay. the youngest person in the family. The problem with doing mammograms at a younger age than 40 is the uh, breasts tend to be very dense and it's hard to find or, or discern what's normal breast tissue and what's an abnormality. So we don't routinely do that for younger age groups. I see. So do you rely, I guess, more on a manual exam for the for the younger patients unless there's just a really strong family history as you're talking about? Yes, that is correct. The self-breast exam and, most, and a lot of patients will tell me they don't know how to do a self-breast exam. Honestly, I can't tell you how many women come to me with having done a self-breast exam and detecting a mass. I usually tell people, you know, to palpate or feel your breast with the flat of your palm. That said, most women kind of know what's normal and not normal in the breast. And, and a lot of times we'll pick up by whatever way they're feeling their breast a lump that didn't exist before. So um, really don't be hung up on the the accurate way to evaluate your breast. If you certainly know how to do it, that's great. If not, just feel around once a month because pretty soon you'll catch something if it didn't exist. And it sounds like being consistent with regards to the frequency of it as you're talking about doing it monthly, um, apparently, because I know that some women talk about Lumpy breasts, for example, they just have uh, breasts to, mm-hmm. that to a deeper palpation tends to, you can feel, um, the, I guess it's the various glands within the breast tissue that they're able to palpate, maybe more so than on some others. But uh, even still, apparently, with some consistency, they get to know the the landscape, if you will. And so, therefore, if something is changing, um, yes. becoming more prominent, then they'll be able to detect it because they're doing it regularly. That is exactly correct, yes. A lot of women have lumpy breasts, but yes, you will. Uh, it's it's very similar to finding a spot on your skin that didn't exist. You will pretty soon know what's normal for you and what's abnormal. And so in the event that something is discovered and you go to do a biopsy and uh, it turns out to be a cancerous lesion, t- talk about how that process flows. What? How do you stage it? How do you determine how far along it is? And, and we'll start getting into where do we go from there? Yeah, so once a woman feels a lump, or let's say if they there is an abnormality detected on the mammogram, the next step is to do a biopsy, which is simply a needle stick into the lump or the abnormality detected on the mammogram and looking at it under the microscope that will help differentiate between a normal breast tissue and a cancerous breast tissue. The next step after that, once a cancer diagnosis is made, is to uh, treat it. And before we treat it, we uh, 
depending upon how big the lump is um, or whether or not it has spread, the treatments vary. The standard treatment for a breast cancer that is limited to the breast and has not spread anywhere else other than maybe lymph nodes under the arm, called the axillary lymph nodes, um, for for these early stages of breast cancer, the most commonly treatment involves surgery where you remove either just a lump or the entire breast, depending upon how big the lump is and so forth, followed by, in some cases, chemotherapy, followed by, in some cases, radiation treatments, and then depending upon the type of breast cancer, they have special markers called estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, then some women will need to be on pills for about 5 or 10 years. Mm. And then depending upon whether or not they have another special marker called pertunia, which is an aggressive type of breast cancer, those women may need to be on a medicine called Herceptin, which is not a chemotherapy for about a year. I see. And... What about the, I, I'm sure that it may have complicated the, the, the discussions a little bit for you somewhat when uh, the, some of the celebrities have come out and, and they just opted for bilateral mastectomies or mastectomy when, in your professional opinion, you might have been able to do what you're talking about, maybe a lumpectomy or some lymph nodes and still preserve the breast. Um, how have those types of you know, pop culture events affected your practice? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, you know, so really, uh, the celebrity, uh, that Ms. Jolene that decided to have bilateral mastectomy, the, the reason why, um, she had it done was really for medical reasons. Uh, she had a genetic breast cancer syndrome that I we see. talked about earlier, which can predispose them into bilateral, meaning both sides, breast cancer, uh, so in these women, even though they have breast cancer in one breast at this particular time, their chances of getting a future breast cancer in the opposite breast is about 85%. So those women that have a positive genetic test really should undergo mastectomy on both sides. For most other women, which we're talking a good 95% of patients that don't have the genetic breast cancer syndrome, we seldom need to remove the opposite breast unless there is any evidence of cancer involvement in that breast. And for most women, there is no cancer in the opposite breast. Now, that said, I, I certainly have met plenty of women that don't want to deal with future mammograms um, <laughs> and don't want to um, have, quote, lopsided breasts where you have a breast and don't have a breast on the other side. And for cosmetic reasons um, or personal choices of not having to deal with anxiety of future mammograms, they opt to have both breasts removed. However, that is not medically necessary. I understand. And and for you as, just a, as a physician who is obviously you you have to deliver the news that this is cancer i mean how just from a personal perspective for you as a as an individual i mean what's what's that process like for you how do you it would seem that you have to really kind of 
gear yourself up mentally and emotionally to be able to deliver that news that you know is going to be so life-changing for the person hearing it. Yes, it's it's certainly a, a very difficult time. I, I do... Um, um, it's, it's not an easy moment. Uh, fortunately, uh, for me as an oncologist, a medical oncologist, a lot of times patients come to me with cancer diagnosis. Um, so it's a lot easier in many ways because by then they are already prepared for the diagnosis. My hardest times are really when someone should have been cured of their cancer and fortunately it recurs years later and or months or days later and I'm walking into the room sharing with them that the cancer has either come back or spread and has become incurable. And uh, it is a very, very um, hard time. I usually pray before I walk into the room mm-hmm. and um, and really hope that, you know, it'll, it'll be taken appropriately. And it certainly is, is uh, a time where I... Um, uh, give myself plenty of time with that patient and really let them take as much time as they want as they digest the information that's just been provided to them. I, a lot of times, will make a follow-up phone call or have them come back into the office in a short interval and uh, and go over a lot of questions that they may have. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's certainly not an easy process. And once that initial diagnosis has been made. We talked about some of the different things that you'd be doing in terms of potentially chemo, potentially lumpectomy or even mastectomy, um, radiation, things like that. Uh, what's the timeline like from that initial discovery that, yes, the, the, the biopsy came back, it is cancerous. I mean, how much time do they have before they really have to start making decisions? It would seem that if there is some time, it would help digest some of the emotions around that news so they can begin to make fairly objective, educated choices. Because from what I understand, particularly early, earlier the cancers are discovered, then they, they may have some measure of choice over which direction they take. Yeah, so most patients, once they have been diagnosed with cancer, really want to get moving pretty fast. Um, so generally speaking, they have had their mammogram and the radiologist has done a biopsy and, and then they get the news so that is cancer. Pretty soon, within a matter of a couple of weeks, they are in a surgeon's office talking about surgery and they come to me either within three to four weeks after surgery, sometimes before surgery, if we need to do treatments ahead of time. So generally, from their initial biopsy to when they have seen me, depending upon whether or not they've had surgery, it could be as little as two weeks to as many as four weeks. And once they come to my office, we get moving very quickly, generally speaking, starting treatments within four weeks of surgery to allow for the tissue to heal and then start on treatments right away. What are good resources that, that in your opinion, are credible and objective sources of information for, for a patient or loved ones of a patient who are diagnosed with a cancer so that they can begin to get educated and, and you know, be um, able to really make 
choices based on good information. I mean, obviously, the the physician like yourself here in this conversation is going to be a big source, but I, I'm sure that when they're out of the office, they're going to be wanting to try to find information in the meantime. Do you have some recommendations on where those folks should go to try to read up or, or get information or, along the way as they're trying to digest the di- diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So fortunately, this day and age, having the the web, we have a wealth of resources on the web. That said, um, one thing I do warn my patients is be careful what you read on the web. That's right. Um, the reputable source, uh, there's one that I um, uh, give to my patients called cancer.gov. It's a National Cancer Institute website. It is very well uh, put forth on the website. They have a patient portal and they have a physician or healthcare professional portal. It makes it very easy for them to understand details of cancer. There are multiple other websites. In general, I um, advise my patients to choose websites from reputable universities. WebMD is a good resource. Uh, but really something that is written by a medical doctor from a reputable university is generally a, a good bet. Um, cancer.gov is really a, a very good standard website that pretty much deals with any cancer out there. And we were talking earlier, you mentioned the HER2 new uh, type of lesion. Uh, from what I understand, there are some therapies emerging now that give a targeted approach for those challenging cancers. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yes. Yeah, so breast cancers, broadly speaking, are either HER2 new positive or they're HER2 new negative. The HER2 new positive breast cancers account for roughly about a quarter, 20 to 25% of all breast cancers. These are very aggressive breast cancers and if they're not treated with anti-hertonew antibody type of drugs, what we call targeted therapies, almost always will recur and can be devastating. So that said, fortunately, this day and age, we have come a very long way in treatment of hertonew positive cancers. We have antibodies that specifically target the hertonew marker on these breast cancers. And that's why they're called targeted therapy. Unlike chemotherapies, which attack good cells and bad cells, because these are antibodies, they go directly after the HER2 new positive cells. They do have some other side effects as well, however, not as bad as chemotherapy. In other words, they don't cause hair loss typically, not as nauseating, uh, very well tolerated. We have um, at least three new drugs. One called one is Herceptin, which is used in early stages of breast cancer and also advanced stage. And two other drugs, one is Pertuzumab and the other one is Ketsala. They are both used in advanced breast cancer and someday hopefully will also be used in early stage. And we have many clinical trials looking at them at early stages of breast cancer at the present time. We've been talking with Dr. Priya Rudolph of Georgia Cancer Specialist, a medical oncologist with the group who uh, treats a number of uh, different cancers but does have a measure of personal interest in the breast cancer patients. And we've been talking about 
how it's diagnosed these days, uh, a number of the different treatment options that that women have, how it's staged and so forth, even getting some feedback on how challenging it can be sometimes to have these conversations uh, as a provider that's delivering this kind of heavy news. And, and along with that side of things, the emotional and spiritual side of uh, being a cancer patient, are there resources that a patient should get involved with along the way that will potentially help allay some of those fears, maybe give them some measure of support? Yeah, so this day and age, fortunately, we have in pretty much any location, we have what's called cancer support groups. Um, I encourage folks to please contact your local hospital to find out where the cancer support group meets. Uh, I have seen cancer support groups in little towns to big centers, and they are really your best uh, way of coping with a new diagnosis because this is where uh, patients get to meet other patients with a similar diagnosis um, one-on-one and really develop personal relationships and support groups that go a long way as they're walking through this journey and it really helps to hear from someone else that has walked in their shoes. Um, other than that, certainly lean on your providers um, who can uh, help channel you towards some other resources that may be available uh, locally within uh, whatever center you're being treated at. It's um, uh, we, we have really come a long way in realizing that uh, support uh, is very important for cancer patients, and there are many programs out there, whether it be web-based or one-on-one meetings, uh, that help patients through their journey with cancer. Do you have any final thoughts or or advice for folks before I let you get back to your day? Uh, one big advice that I really want to leave patients with is, or, or I should say a fact, is that breast cancer is curable. Um, and it's really very important to realize that uh, the key to cure is early detection. So um, please be diligent with your monthly self-breast exams and keep up with your yearly mammograms. And that alone will help cure a lot of breast cancers. <laughs> yeah, and and it, our, our conversation is timely because isn't uh, October Breast Cancer Awareness Month? That is correct. October is just <laughs> right around the course. So if someone has missed having their mammogram, that is a good time to do mammogram because regardless of insurance, uh, many centers offer free mammograms in the month of October. So make sure that you, if you haven't been doing uh, breast self self breast breast exams on a monthly basis, that you start doing that. And if you have questions about how it's done, uh, certainly get with um, your OBGYN and their nursing staff or your your physician that you see on a regular basis for your gynecologic reasons to uh, make sure that you know exactly how you need to conduct a self-breast exam. And, and as Priya was talking about earlier in the conversation, that not just once in a while, doing so on a regular basis is one of the key facets to being able to detect a change that is evolving in the breast that would allow you to seek help early on if you turn out to be one of the folks that develops uh, breast cancer. So uh, I really appreciate, Priya, you taking some time today to share some great information, share a little bit about your story. I'm sure that it means something to people to know that 
you went into this particular field of study with some personal reasons. You had your own personal experience with cancer in your family, and um, that would measure uh, give you a measure of empathy, I'm sure, and understanding about what patients and their family are dealing with as they're going through it themselves. Yeah, thank you for having me, CW. This is great. And um, again, reminder, folks, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is just around the corner. If you haven't gotten um, in touch with the folks at Georgia Cancer Specialists, you can learn more about uh, Dr. Priya Rudolph and her colleagues and the practice in general at gacancer.com, gacancer.com. They've got um, social media feeds on Twitter and Facebook. I know we're tied in with you there from some of the previous colleagues who've joined us on the show over time. Um, they're always putting out great information for uh, cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about it. And uh, we certainly hope to be having more of Dr. Rudolph's colleagues join us on the show to share some more information. Uh, obviously, it's uh, it's one of those life-changing events that people end up dealing with. So when we have conversations about this topic, it's always uh, highly consumed. So I'm really pleased to get to sit down with one of the experts of Georgia Cancer Specialist uh, to talk yet again. So, uh, Dr. Rudolph, I really appreciate getting a chance to meet you here on the show, and uh, we'll have to have you back sometime because obviously there's other other cancers that you deal with that I'm sure you can lend some expertise on. Thank you so much, CW. I appreciate it having me. All right. Well, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks so much, Dr. Rudolph. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. It was a pleasure getting to introduce you to Dr. Priya Rudolph, the medical oncologist with Georgia Cancer Specialist from their Athens location, talking about breast cancer. If you're checking out the podcast, look up at the left-hand corner of the page. You'll see the Apple logo. Go there, and you'll get to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives, and subscribe to it, because each week we're going to be bringing you healthcare experts uh, that can either give you some great health advice or perhaps uh, bring some technical expertise of some sort that might help your practice function a little bit better, maybe be a little bit more profitable because it is a business, as we know. So uh, make sure that you subscribe so you can check out these great folks that we're bringing to you from the healthcare space on a weekly basis. And for all the people that stopped by and checked out the show today, whether it's live or on the podcast, we really appreciate your time and energy. Hope you turn around and share the content with your networks because you may just put some great information in the hands of someone that you care about that could really help them. So uh, for your investment in time and us, we really appreciate you. And we'll see you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 